Welcome back, pod people, to a new episode of Cinema de More. I'm one of your hosts, Justin Morgan. I'm here with Chuck Phillips. And we are continuing discussing directors, and we are moving on to Stanley Kubrick. We are going to do four Stanley Kubrick films, starting with 1956's The Killing. And Chuck's already yawning. I'm already, I'm already, already sleeping. Yeah, I, I enjoy this movie. I forgot how short it was. Like, I know, I know his his early movies. You know, like those first few. Like he wasn't doing like anything really epic length, but I, I forgot like how short. And this movie is just super tight, I guess, is, is the right way to put it. There isn't the, there isn't like an inch of wasted uh, film in this. Like everything is very clearly done with a purpose. And like there's, there's just nothing there that, that it's like, oh, yeah, I don't know. Maybe you could have cut that or maybe you could have done that a little bit different or shortened that up. It really does feel like even at this early stage, because what is this? Is this like his fourth film, I want to say? Paths of Glory was before this. <laughs> The Killing is this third film. Yeah. Feature film. Because he did documentaries beforehand. I actually had just watched his first feature film right before recording this podcast, which is Fear and Desire. It's awful. I've never seen it, so. It, you, well, if anybody listening right now wants to see Stanley Kubrick's first feature film, it is on Amazon Prime for free. And when I saw, it looked like The Killing is also on there for free. Yeah, it's on Amazon. That's where I just ended up watching it for convenience. And you got it on Criterion, which is a great addition, too. Yeah. Yeah, I, uh, the first time that I watched this movie was in film school. I actually took a Kubrick class. I also want to say this is the first film that they started us with. We didn't watch Fear and Desire documentaries, and we didn't watch Kill- Killer's Kiss, which is just his second film. It's also film noir. It came out the year before this. I've saw that, but it's been a while. I didn't like it very much either. But definitely, Fear and Desire is terrible. <laughs> I'm not saying that lightly either. It's not. He said that he didn't like the film, and I was thinking, you know how directors all the time are like, oh, yeah, that, that movie sucked, but it's still pretty good. Yeah. His is like he's never made anything before. <laughs> And it feels a little experimental with his editing and his sound. And there's this narration. The story's kind of bland. It takes place in a war, nameless war with nameless sides. It's just terrible. <laughs> it's just really bad. I don't know if there's people that, I don't know if they're necessarily non-actors or, or what's going on. But I, I'm glad that he got to continue making more films because that would have really sucked if um, it just ended there and then we never got any of these ones. Because everything we're talking about this month, I think, is fantastic. Yeah. I mean, I would say all of his movies, I guess, after this film are fantastic. I don't really, I don't really know that I'd consider any of uh, uh, any of his other like later films to be bad. Like I said, this is this, I guess, I would say is probably the earliest of his films that I've seen because I've never watched uh, Killer's Kiss uh fear and loathing or or sorry fear and desire uh i've never gotten around to watching those so so i don't know maybe yeah maybe you know it it just took him a little while to figure out what he was working on the killing definitely feels like the first stanley kubrick as we know him film to me at least because Mm -hmm. i get that the plot changes but he has a very distinct style and it does grow It, it definitely grows but I definitely think from Dr. Strangelove on, you could watch those movies and tell who was behind the camera. I think my favorite part of this film is just the overall, 
the way that he does pace everything. I enjoy the heist, you know, kind of structure that he puts into it. He has like those film noir elements in this, obviously. Uh, yeah, just something about like the way he goes back and forth. Like he'll show you something, have characters react, and then you have like that narration that's like half an hour earlier <laughs> that just like randomly throws you back and like accounts for where everything something strange was going I on would or... guess the only thing that's kind of bad about the film and I don't mind it because you usually have the the voiceover narration through these film noirs yeah if you didn't have the the narration telling you what time things were happening it would be it would make no sense yeah and if you did watch it linearly like they they fixed it to be in order I don't think it would be nearly as exciting. It would just, it'd be so bland. So what makes it exciting is, and for those who are unaware, The Killing is a heist film. And I don't really have to go deep into the, it's more plot driven than it is character driven. Mind you, I don't know how to necessarily describe the characters because you get different, a lot of different personalities, but you don't necessarily get a lot. You know, there's like no character arc for any of them. Not really. You have like three different relationships kind of going on. You have one relationship where there, it's kind of this new love will run away together. Another one that is the femme fatale type thing where the guy's uh, being cheated on and he's a wuss in her eyes and then like the third one is like ultra caring and the wife's sick and he's just trying to take care of her yeah and then you have the cop that needs to pay off his gambling debts well i was talking relationship unless you're talking about his relationship relationship. with debt i was just more or less going into like yeah kind of like that that's their character arc for any of these characters is these very these very small moments is kind of all we all we really get even the guy that's like taking care of his wife we really only get like two scenes of that showing anything like he goes home the one time and she's already passed out and we see she has like the the drugs and stuff that she needs to take and then we see her see her later when he wakes up and you know says he's like gonna gonna make it big and get all the money to take care of her yeah we do stick with these people i i believe there are easily six characters if not more that we actually follow individually by themselves at some point in the in the movie if i have that right but i think the fun the fun is in the style i think the fun is in the heist obviously it's a little complex so nothing is necessarily going to go right and there's a lot of moving parts so a lot of things always feel like twists because it's typical, but what you know is going to happen usually doesn't happen right. And then what is withheld from you is like part of the plan that went perfectly, but we didn't tell the audience. But it's, yeah, it's just fun in general because even when they're talking about the heist, you don't 100% understand how all the characters are going to play into it. You're still in the dark a little bit. But every character is is quite a character, I, I'd have to say. my I mean, like all of them. Every single one of them I like. Like, I love the the husband that's like, um, what is he, beta male or whatever. <laughs> he's, yeah. like the, the, he's like the loser. Um, and my favorite is probably Maurice, just because I don't understand what the fuck Maurice saying says. Yeah. The subti- you know what? They nailed the subtitles. So if you can watch the movie with <laughs> subtitles, you can understand it. 
But I literally closed my eyes and tried to hear what he's saying, and it's just gibberish. He's like, unless he has the shorter lines, like, give me a beer. All right. I understood that. Yeah. Yeah, he, he, they're they're all fun characters to get to know. Yeah, I don't feel like you even, like, hate any of the characters. You you start to get the... You start to get mad, I guess, for, like, the Alicia Cook character that's the, the husband that's always getting, like, mocked by his wife. And, yeah, he's the... Because she's the worst. Yeah, he's the one that brings <laughs> the whole thing down. Yeah, she even, like, tells... Uh, tells her boyfriend like i was just i was about to tell him today that i was finally gonna leave him and then he started going off about some sort of big scheme to get money or something so so that was like the, you know the entire reason this this whole thing came down was uh because he just like can't help himself and clearly clearly has a wife that is not interested in him at all in the slightest i love how clearly she makes it known that she's like motivated for money She's like, you don't buy me things. Yeah. Yeah, they live in a they live in a small apartment that's that's you know run down. She never. You would almost think because there's a moment in this movie too where, in the very beginning of the movie, they're handing out secretly handing out an address and a time to meet so they can discuss with all these moving pieces, all these characters, if they want to be a part of the heist. And then there's George. George is the husband, yeah. Yeah. Uh, George tells his wife something along the lines of they're going to be rich soon. So she knows that, like, he's he's doing something that's kind of sketchy because he's going out and he won't tell her where. And she follows him. And I think if this was was more of a stronger noir, Johnny Clay's character probably wouldn't have a girlfriend. And I feel like his... George's wife would try to seduce Johnny because there's a very small part in there where George is essentially like they think that he's conspiring against them and they kick him out, but they hold on to his wife and then later him and his wife reunite and he questions like, how was, how was Johnny around you? Like he didn't, like he does not trust Johnny or he doesn't trust his wife to be around Johnny. And I thought that could have been an interesting plot for her to try to, seduce that other guy yeah yeah she just kind of plays it as uh first she keeps telling him that that oh he didn't do anything it was fine and then you know george is like okay and then yeah later when she's trying to get more information from him, he's like i mean i wasn't gonna tell you last time because you seem like you're real good friends with him but you know he was like he he, he was all over me he tried to attack me uh to like play them against each other yeah i mean i think they do I like another thing that I think works really well is obviously not understanding exactly how things went down in what I'm assuming is still supposed to be a contemporary time, 1955 or whenever they were filming this movie. Yeah. So I can kind of believe that like maybe security isn't as great as like, you know, nowadays they have cameras and all this kind of stuff. And there's all, all kind of ways to track you. So this being like, what if you made a diversion? And then I just walked through that door. You know, in modern times, they would need a key or something to get in that door. Even if, or like, he still had somebody open the door for him. But I feel like he could have just opened that himself. Yeah. Also, though, like, 
Maurice, for example, he is one of the two characters that are kind of given a side task and they're not in on the whole heist idea. And he's supposed to start a brawl and a riot. He's basically inciting a riot to distract all the security so the heist can happen. And it's as close as you're going to get to a Stanley Kubrick superhero film, I think. <laughs> it has like all the elements of a of some superhero fight. And it has the greatest moment of, of all time, I think, where they rip off his shirt. Like, there's something funny about it. I don't know if Stanley Kubrick thought it was funny. It definitely gives you that imagery because isn't he a wrestler? He, yeah. he likes wrestling. So once the shirt comes off, he has more of like that wrestler like stature. Like he looks like he's almost in costume, I guess. That uh, the guy that plays Maurice makes me think of um, George Steele, who's in Ed Wood. He plays that like Hungarian. Oh, yeah, character. yeah, yeah. He because does. He is, I mean, he and he was a wrestler too. Like that. That's his whole thing. But he's like the exact same, like just ridiculously hairy and just like you. Yeah, just mangles English to the point where you can't understand anything he's saying. But uh, every time I see this movie, that's what I, I. He always makes me think of that character from Ed Wood that he plays. Uh, the actor is Nicholas Nestor Kula Karariani. I'm probably saying the fucking that up. Yeah, probably. His ring name is Nick the Wrestler. He was a professional wrestler in Georgia and chess player. So he didn't really stray far from his real persona. Georgia the country? No. He's okay. a I was Georgia just the sure, state. Because I don't know where he's originally from. It says that he was born in Russia. I mean, that's close to Georgia. Did <laughs> he go from one Georgia to the other? Well, here's the weird thing. I mean, I don't 100% know the background. I would imagine that Kubrick knows of this guy from the chess world because he's really big in the chess. Yeah. Possibly wrestling. I mean, his... You know what? If I think about it, um, was it he in Killer's Kiss? Because Killer's Kiss is wrestling, so... Maybe. I don't know. Could be. He has filmography right here. No, this is his only movie. <laughs> okay, so, sorry, I'm doing my research live. Stanley Kubrick did a kind of wrestling film before this, Killer's Kiss. I bet you just somewhere along the lines, like, it, within that year, like, doing research or something, I, I feel like this guy had to be... A stunt guy, or yeah, he might have been in the back helping. Maybe. Yeah, like I feel like he, if he he wasn't an actor, but I feel that he, he's had to be doing something. But he's so interesting because I don't know when he came over to the, the states, but his accent is so thick. It's, it's pretty thick. He's a you. You do start to get also borderline with the other guy that they hire. Uh, he's almost hard to understand, but not as bad. The uh, the guy that gets the guns for uh, Sterling Hayden's character, which I uh, I feel it's like, like a muscle man and a sharpshooter yeah, essentially. That, that guy makes me think of if this movie was remade nowadays, or or say per perhaps remade by the Cohen brothers, that role would be played by John Turturro. That guy reminds me of him for for whatever reason, just like the way he talks and acts. Like I feel like that would be like talks one of his, his teeth a lot, acts like a little off, like he's yeah, he's a weird guy. Everything about him's weird. The first time you see him. They're shooting these tar. They're doing target practice with the guns, and he's like talking to Johnny, and he's like, "Yeah, this is the gun." And Johnny's holding a dog for him. Yeah, 
and they like swap the gun with the dog and i'm like what is going on with this guy yeah there's, there's all sorts of weird stuff with that guy yeah it is interesting the way they set up that plot uh when they tell uh, both guys try to get a little more information and try to get a piece of the cut i guess uh that's what the wrestler uh maurice asks is you know he, he offers him twenty five hundred dollars and he says, well, maybe I'll only take $1,000 and then you give me a percentage of the of the cut. And, you know, Johnny tells him that's not his call to make and that it'd be better for everyone if he's just a paid guy and, like, he's willing to pay this guy way more because he says, you know, you could get a guy for 100 bucks to, to start a fight. And he's like, no, I need a professional that I know is going to make this, like, be huge and take, you know, they're going to have to drag you out of there. Like, I can't trust that another guy's just going to get beat up or something like that and nothing's going to happen. And the same with the uh, the guy with the gun. The same way, like, oh, maybe maybe you want to let me know what's going on. And he's like, he's like, look, man, I just need you to kill a horse. That's all I need you to do. He's like, you kill the horse and that's going to be it. I like the joke where he's he's like, I don't know. You'll it's not a person. You won't get arrested for killing a horse. Yeah, I don't even season. know if that's a, yeah, I don't know, even know if that's a crime. Yeah, the only one that really makes out, and we'll get into the end. We, there, it's it's not the most ambiguous, but the only character that has profited from anything is Maurice. I think. I mean, basically, he's the only one that that gets out without. He got I mean, out. He probably and he just goes to jail for like a month or something like that, like Johnny says. He he was paid in advance, which I thought was weird, but like the rest of the guys. He was paid in advance, and I believe the gun, the sharpshooter guy, was also paid in advance, but... Only $2,500. Uh, he got he the other 2500 when he... So you got basically got $0. Yeah. Yeah. The con- some There's, like, a little bit of miscommunication there, too, that I think's funny. Like, there's things I'm not sure if they're supposed to be funny or not. When he drives in his car to the parking lot... And the guard won't let him in. And he's like, oh, I have to. I'm paraplegic. And I'm thinking, like, well, how how would you be driving a car if you were paraplegic? Yeah. And it doesn't get questioned. But I don't even think he was that nice of the guy, like, nice to the guy to bribe him. And then the guy's like, you really made my day, mister. I'm like, did he? <laughs> he gave you yeah. some money, but he wasn't even nice. He wasn't even nice to you. This guy's like, I do like that concept, though, of the guy that's too nice. Here's a brochure. Comes back. Here's a horseshoe yeah, for, to bring luck. you luck. Yeah, which ends up being his uh, his undoing, his bad luck. Well, cause, and he just like, it is one of those things, too, where it's like, yeah, I don't know how else you get out of that situation. Like, you know you need to pull your gun out and shoot this horse. And that guy's just like trying, like, trying to be too friendly. And he, he just has to be like look, man, get away from me. Like, you're bothering me. I don't like your face. I don't like you. Like, get away from me. Oh, uh, he calls him the N-word. He is not very nice. But yeah. So, he, yeah, he has to throw that out there just to just to get the guy to leave. I love his windshield that's, like, a foot high, and he still has to, like, take it down Break so he can down. have a clear shot. Yeah. There's a lot of, yeah, there's a lot of moving parts in this plan, uh, which, again, yeah, the way they, they kind of, they kind of just drop things in and out. We we don't get the full plan up front. Uh, we see we see Johnny with the the bank layout or not the bank layout, the track layout, and he even says like, 
I don't remember if this is all correct. This is how I remember it. He's like, I'm going to need you two guys to like fill me in if something's changed or if something moved around there lately. Cause I think he said, I want to say at the beginning of the movie, he says he's been in prison for like five years or something like that. When he's talking to his girlfriend, I think that's what he says. He's been in jail for five years or something. Uh, so he's got this plan. And, and yeah, the I mean, there's a guy that's like essentially there to bring a gun in for them. Yeah. I mean, like, there's a lot of ways for there to be, like, easy, easy mistakes, I guess. Yeah, there's a, My, there's a lot of things that could, could go wrong with this plan. I mean, I love the clown mask that clearly inspired Christopher Nolan. Yeah. I kind of have, like, I was having, like, Django Unchained vibes when he put the mask on, though, thinking, like, can he even see in that thing? <laughs> yeah, those eye holes are so tiny. Uh, I love though the guy when they rob the um the money room when Johnny Clay finally robs it and there's four guys in there and the one guy that's like bagging up all the money how much money like doesn't make it into yeah. the bag this is all over the floor yeah and then later when he puts it in the suitcase it's like the same story it's like yeah. no one gives a shit if like all this money didn't even make it into the case yeah yeah, I, I had the same thought. Is like there, like he, yeah, he's like flipping over one of those, uh, one of the like tubs of money to dump it in, and it looks like almost none of it goes in the bag at all. It like all goes on the floor, <laughs> and you'd think he's like, and I, yeah, as he's like pulling even the like the packets of money out, he's like he's like shoving them so hard they're like going flying everywhere. And yeah, Johnny, you'd think that'd be a line or something like like, hey, make sure you're actually getting it in the bag or something like that. But I mean, the guy's moving just... so slow. You think that he would get them in the yeah. bag? Or the, yeah, yeah. It's yeah. He, he doesn't like yell at him and tell him he needs to like take it easy or something like that. Yeah, get them all in there. But uh... yeah, I mean, I guess overall, it's not the the film's obviously not the most clever because the big thing is like, where did he hide the money? He threw it out the fucking window. Yeah, to the to the cop waiting there that had to be there at the exact right time like another one of those flashbacks like yeah earlier that afternoon we see the you know we see the cop that i guess is like i don't hate the the narration that they have to use because like you like you said earlier if they didn't tell you that or they had to use they'd almost have to use like title cards for every single transition to say like you know half an hour earlier or something like that they'd have to do something to to make it make sense but it makes me think of uh another film uh naked city which has like the same problem of i think most of that movie is good except i think the narration in that film is terrible it's almost exactly identical to this where i think that starts out with the guy saying like there's 26 million people in the in the city that never sleeps and this is just some of their stories or something like that it has like like the narration's terrible but then the movie itself i i do really like but i do hate the narration because it it feels more forced in that story than it does in this. Well, I don't hate the narr- the narration has a very strong purpose in this. It does. But but ideally like you shouldn't be telling your story through exposition if you can yeah. help it. So to constantly have to be like, I mean there this is more about time than people. It does say, "Hey, this is Johnny Clay and and you know, it's this time and he's planning the heist and then just like it cuts it real short. But a lot of it is like earlier that day and it, it's like the guy that's waiting out the window to like catch the bag of money essentially. Yeah. Or there was a huge time jump when they jumped to the sharpshooter guy 
because they jumped back to like way early in the morning where he was like the first yeah. person to show up in the parking lot. You have to like pay attention to sometimes they sometimes it's not even the narration. You also have to pay attention to what race it is because then they'll you keep hearing in the background like oh, the horses are on the track for race number four. And we know that race number seven is the is the one when the uh, the actual you know job's going to go down. So you also have to pay attention for those sometimes. Uh, but I would agree like the narration does serve a purpose. But yeah, it would be it would be nice if I would like to see someone remake this movie and try to do it without the narration, like like figure out a way to give you some of those some of those things without just flat out. Like I said, having to tell you, you know, across town, Officer Mike is doing this today. I mean, I don't think if it I know you said title cards, but like a small clock or something in the corner, I don't you know that yeah. pops up like here's the time wouldn't be too bad i mean there's but obviously, obviously this is this is another movie where so many ideas were taken from definitely pulp fiction's inspired I mean, by I, this that's movie. what i was gonna say is like like a film like pulp fiction works in that like yeah you you just have to figure out like where to put those clues to tell you like what time this is supposed to be like seeing oh that character is still alive or that character's doing this then obviously they're at this point in the story or now that character's wearing this clo- set of clothing. like Or when George jumps out of the bathroom, it's very reminiscent of the Jerry Seinfeld-esque character jumping out in the be- uh, well, not necessarily beginning, but the beginning scene is what it ties into Pulp Fiction. Yeah. I was thinking of... Uh, yeah, you're, you're right on that one. I was thinking more of uh, Butch at the end when he kills uh, John Travolta. Like, thinking of that, like like... Just kind of like looking around like where yeah what's he what's he say where's the uh i can't remember what he calls him now he's looking for george he's like he's like where's that loser or something like that and then george goes out and he's like that loser's right here <laughs> yeah <laughs> andy's the only one that survives like i mean for a while yeah and then i i also love the moment too where he when he runs out to the car and he like falls essentially on Johnny's hood of his car, but he never looks... He never looks into the car at all. Like, the notice who it is, you'd think they would 100% might made eye contact. There's... Uh, yeah, but there, I guess the idea is that Johnny's not trying to screw over everybody else. Yeah. He got the signal that they tell things the, went yeah, bad. They say the plan is whoever... Like, if there's any indication that something happened, that whoever They literally the money, say it at that exact yeah, moment. Yeah. There's a moment like that, and the other the other one is when uh, that I feel like could have been a more a better opportunity for like more tension or something is the um, Unger, the guy that's like the money guy that's mm-hmm. that's kind of like financially backing them. When uh, when Johnny goes to leave his apartment for the last time, and he says, you know, I'm you know make sure you have an alibi, go to the movies or something like that. Like whatever you do, don't be at the track. And then we get that scene later on when he shows up at the track drunk and it feels like that should be a moment where you're like, we're like, Oh, is he going to ruin the whole thing? Is he going to like start saying something? Is he, you know, is he going to want to like walk up to Johnny and be like, Oh, you ready for the plan, Johnny? And like Johnny had to like punch him or something like that. Like, right. Like they set it up as if it, him being there is going to ruin things and then then he's there, but it's just, everyone just kind of looks like mad that he's there and no one does anything or says anything. The, the book, the guy at the bar is just like, I think you've had enough, buddy. And he's like, oh, yeah, you're right. And he just walks away. And I'm like, that was like that was like one of the big 
one of the only moments that I'm like that that felt like it really should have been should have done something more with that to like really really make it like a tense like oh is this yeah is this gonna like ruin the whole plan is this gonna blow it for everybody yeah i mean i i kind of wish that it's really not a bad it's a great movie i would definitely categorize it as a great movie but if you were gonna remake it and you were gonna change some things i think i would change some of the motivations with the characters i would have probably made the boyfriend of the wife somebody that was just like trying to get money from her to begin with. And then like almost like he's going to, as soon as he gets the money, he's not even going to come pick her up. He's going to leave with all the money. And leave yeah. And, or not even that like they're in on it to get like the idea of robbing the people that do the heist is more so his idea yeah. than hers. She, and I don't like the, I, I guess what I really don't like is she's not a great femme fatale. She's terrible from the beginning, so there's no shock or surprise that she's yeah. she's an awful person when you it's, finally it's, do yeah, meet her. It's it's the most obvious thing in the world that she's gonna betray her husband's trust, right? Or have her be awful, but have the girl that Johnny is with be the one that portrays the trust. Yeah, I yeah. mean, obviously, if you're remaking it, I you'd have to change what some of the outcomes, or it'd be fucking boring yeah. or shit. If this is like, yeah. <laughs> this is like one of those movies that i do i do think is a really good movie but i feel like it does have enough elements that you could 100 percent approve on that i would be really interested to see like some some younger director nowadays like try to remake this film and do something interesting with it i mean we are i mentioned it already but if you and it's not just the mask but the beginning of the dark knight is a heist film yeah and it does kind of have like this a similar vibe to it of not everybody knows what's going on and there's other people that are involved. Yeah. And I know even though you you know that the one character is the Joker and you know that he set up all these people, there's moments where like I was supposed to kill the bus driver and he's yeah. like, What bus driver? Then the bus crashes like in, the, yeah. yeah, that kind of element those, those moments, yeah. feels very much in line with what's yeah. happening in this. Yeah. What's your job? I'm just here to kill you. <laughs> yeah. That's what I'm getting. I also I mean, I think that his the cinematography for it, the tracking shots are really good. There's the I think it's that very first time that you meet Johnny Clay and he walks through like five rooms, it looks like. And they like continuously have the camera going like past all this stuff in the room. Yeah. When he goes to talk to his girlfriend the first time. It's also really funny too because he talks to her talks to her in like a very low key voice. And I think that he walks like five rooms over to talk to her. And I'm like, I don't think she, I don't see how she could have heard you that far away when you start, <laughs> start talking to her. Yeah, I I think uh, Sterling Hayden's a great actor in these type of films. Uh, I really enjoyed him in uh, Asphalt Jungle when we watched that uh, last year when we covered covered those other film noirs. Uh, I, I always feel like I don't know. Did he just like not get cast enough because he's so awkward? I feel like do uh the directors just look at him and he's like six six or something and they're just like, I can't frame around that fucking guy. He's too tall. I can't put him in a shot. He's gonna Sterling Hayden. Yeah. He's so big. Like he's he's so like awkwardly large that I'm just like, did people just not because I feel like I I don't see him as often as, you know, 
I don't know, you think of like all those other actors that pop up in those film noirs, like Mitchum and all these other actors. And I think he's great in the films that I do see him in, but it's like, he just never got to be like that same, like high level. He was never like the A-list of film noirs, but he's good in all the ones that I have seen him in. Yeah, I don't know everything that I, I have seen him in. Obviously, there's this and Doctor Strange Love. Yeah. And Asphalt Jungle is probably like the biggest. But also, I watched that he was one. was in The Godfather. Yeah. It's probably technically his biggest film, not his biggest role, but. Yeah, it's definitely not his biggest. But uh... The biggest film he's ever been in, I guess. And he's good well, he's in that as like the corrupt like... cop in that film. Like he's great in everything I've seen him in. Like that's why I just wonder, like, what? Yeah, I don't, I've never like looked deep enough, I guess, into his history to say like, like why did he never like reach those heights? And like, so I, I, that's what I just randomly like think is like, you can even see it in this film. He is just like so much larger than everybody else that it's like awkward. Like everyone else is a full, full like six inches shorter than he is in all the scenes. Like he's just such an imposing guy. I like that your theory is that his career didn't work out or could have been stronger if he was shorter. He's just too tall. I mean, how many, that's the thing. Think about like how many, uh, I feel like it's still even today. Like you've got someone like, uh, Tom Cruise, who's like five, six, but he'll get cast in so many more action movies than if you had a guy that was like six, seven, that it's like, Oh, that guy's way too tall. Like I I don't want to even deal with like putting him in the shots. Like you'll put the shorter guy and just make him look taller rather than get the taller guy and like try to make him fit with everybody else. Yeah, I mean you're watching everybody on this huge screen. It's kind of hard to judge the <laughs> the size of them sometimes. <laughs> you know, you meet them in person and then they are like half your size, and you're like, "Real? I thought you were much much bigger than this." Yeah, it's just what I wonder. He was also in the Long Goodbye. That was I was trying to think of what the other thing I knew him from was. That's that's his other that's another noir that he's in that's really good. Yeah. Those are like his big ones. I I still never saw Johnny Guitar, so maybe I have to fit yeah. that in if it's any good. It's probably good enough. But yeah, I'm interested. Good enough. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's good enough. He's a, he is a good actor, though. That's probably why he keeps getting recast, but I don't, I don't know. What's his... Uh... Oh, yeah, I mean, he's in a little... He, he basically becomes like a character player, character actor, and all these things. He just starts popping up in smaller things. Yeah, or it's like, I, I don't know if that was like his other problem is like... I think that was the other thing. Maybe just because of his size, he starts getting typecast as just the big thug. Like that's his whole that's his whole thing in uh, Asphalt Jungle is everyone just res- respects him for just being like a real tough guy. Hmm. Like no, you can trust him. He's a real tough guy. Like he's a Here, no-nonsense. Here's actually some knowledge I see right now that I think is interesting. He was offered the role of Quint in Jaws, but turned it down. Hmm. So he could have been in the greatest movie of all time. He could have been, and he passed it up. Well, also he was in Venom. From 1991. And he was also in Top Gun. From 1955. <laughs> <laughs> those, are the, those are the ones that like you hope that someone accidentally clicks on the wrong one when they're uh, when they search for those films online. 
Yeah. Do you love how specific I was? And then I like I throw the year, and it's like it's yeah. not the Top Gun. It's not, it's the, not the Venom that you know. Yeah, it's not the ones you're thinking of. Well, I don't think any. I don't think people would be surprised that like if I said Top Gun, you'd be like, oh yeah, he might, maybe he was in that. Yeah, he's like a military <laughs> guy. Yeah, he's like a it's like a captain or something. Or Venom, you'd be like, wait a minute. When did this guy die? Yeah. Yeah, yeah he was in Venom. What was he, like 98 years old when he was in Venom? Yeah, I think I, I think the thing that I always see him in the most, like, is always Dr. Strangelove. Like, you always see that imagery of him in, the like, the board meetings and stuff like that. Well, yeah. it's not really a board meeting. Um, you know what I'm talking about. I know what you're talking about. <laughs> Hopefully everybody understands what I'm talking yeah, you, about. Yeah, you know what it's, yeah, what's, uh... It's what, like, the infamous... I can't, yeah, I can't think of, like, what you're, like, like, I know it's not a boardroom, but I, like, can't think of what, like, the HQ setting or something. Like, I can't think of what, like, the, the proper term, I guess, you would use is, like, a military, like, the war room. That's what we're talking, that's what we're trying to say. There will be no fighting in the war room. Yeah. That's, that's another, uh, again... I think the one of the best things about this film is the way it's edited. It's it's put together really well, and he definitely clearly had a very good idea of where to put all these shots and you know why. Again, like you were saying, if you shot this thing in linear order or I showed it in linear order, like it it just wouldn't be interesting at all to see everything happening as it's happening. And uh, Doctor Strange is a good example of again his his use of editing. I know that was, that's like one of his big things is I could completely change the movie and editing from what you thought it was going to be when we were shooting it, like to tell his actors yeah. that like, you could think you're shooting one film and I could completely change it in editing to make it an entirely different film, which we, uh, we know that he did that with George C. Scott tricked him into, into being more of a buffoon than he wanted to. Uh, I will may, I'll talk about it more in, next week's episode but tcm is doing a month of accents (laughs) and they were talking about george c scott and like all the accents he was doing in dr strange love yeah but in general they're just talking about some of these places they were talking about the invention of uh that like the sophisticated elite accent that's not a real accent that just came out of hollywood and um Kind of like it's in, been in a couple movies that we've watched, but you know that like high talking accent, and it's not like it's not an American accent, and it's not a British accent. Yeah. It's literally an accent that's been made up for movies, and it's how people talk when it's when they're supposed to be a sophisticated character. Think yeah. think of that scene from Hail Caesar, where they're trying to get um that guy to say his line. <laughs> yeah. That like that's that's the the accent that I'm talking about. It's not like a real accent. It's just a Hollywood accent. We will get into that. Hopefully, we'll get next week. I won't even talk about it. Yeah, you'll, we'll forget about it entirely. By the way. Oh yeah, definitely, we'll forget about it. But I think this is the second Kubrick film that we've ever talked about. Tech? No, no, no. We did do Eyes Wide Shut also. We did Eyes Wide Shut, and we did 2001. 2001. Technically, we did The Shining, but The Shining was the old podcast that I was on before this. So Cinema de More, de More technically did not do it. 
Also, I love second chances. <laughs> That's what you're all about. I mean, I can throw up those episodes, throw them up. Yeah. I can put them up and people can listen to them. I believe Eyes Wide Shut was like, was that? No, that was more recent. That was a. It was a Christmas one. Was it? No, I don't think we did that for Christmas. I thought we did that for uh, sexy movies. <laughs> Sex. I yeah. couldn't. Yeah, I couldn't remember the exact way you phrased Sex it. Sexy. I, like, you I, may... like, I mean, that movie may be borderline <laughs> one of the most unsexy movies about sex. So. You sounded like Borat. Sexy, <laughs> sexy movies. Like, yeah. <laughs> we were talking about sexy movies. People say, what type of movies do you like? Oh, I like the sexy movies. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, I guess uh, we, didn't, we didn't really fully go into the, the ending of this film, but it, it uh, is one we're of my getting favorite. There. It's one of my favorite endings. Uh, it definitely has... Me too. Yeah, it, really, we... it really does stand out well as... Uh, just sort of simple, but fan. Like, why haven't I seen this before? It's such a, great, yeah. it's such a great ending. Yeah, that. Uh, there, there's just something about this entire, so meticulous of a plan. He has, you know, seemingly he has everything worked out. They get to the airport. He's got the briefcase full of money. He's gotten everything switched. I also do love the the random. There's that random moment when he goes to, uh, he goes to like that hotel which is just those little, mm-hmm. basically those little wooden shacks. And he, even then he seems like he's like still kind of like, uh, I don't know, just like shocked by seeing the other guy coming out of the building all shot up and bleeding all over the place. And clearly he's like, oh, there's definitely a problem here. And he gets those houses and he just starts to open the one and you hear a guy inside that's like, yeah, what do you want? And he's like, oh, uh, uh, wrong place. Uh, and he just like, <laughs> he just like moves on. like It's like he, the very next place. Yeah, he's like so bewildered by by what he's just seen like he, he's in a panic that that something's gone terribly wrong and he's not going to get away with like that's when like the the first moment of like doubt starts creeping into his mind that maybe he's not going to get away with this whole plan because something clearly went very wrong at the at the drop-off point that he was supposed to meet everyone at well it's funny because everything that goes wrong and that is like there's the setup with what you just talked about where in his headspace he's not as sharp as he should be at the moment so you would think he would make a mistake. I mean, he kind of does make one small mistake or a large mistake, which is his undoing is essentially he does not know American Airlines baggage regulations. <laughs> um, That and there's a little bit of chance, I guess. I guess it's basically American Airlines that takes him down. I mean, a little bit there, yeah, because he had to check the bag in, which yeah, like his, his thought process is... Uh... He gets that giant suitcase and it stuffs it full of the money. And when he, when the guy's like, okay, I'll have to check that in. And he's like, no, I want to take that with me. And he's like, buddy, that suitcase is way too big. And and then he's like, you know, you could get a small suitcase and he's like, well, but it's one big suitcase for me and my girlfriend. Like we each have like half of the suitcase that we need. And the guy's like, that's not how this works. Also, it's not a great sign when he puts the money in there and he, and he like can't lock it right because it's just like, yeah too cheap cheap, of a suitcase or something it's just a giant cheap suitcase that yeah that's that but that between that and the dog sebastian i I think that's what the dog's name is it's like american airlines just like letting that lady have her dog like that on the runway like yeah like all of it is basically american (laughs) american airlines that takes down 
yeah. <laughs> this heist. Yeah. I and I I love uh the moment after the big moment where the manager of I don't know the the baggage <laughs> checkage and stuff, shit like that. He's on the phone. He's like, "What's on the tarmac?" Yeah. Yeah, all we get all, all you hear that that whole time is just the sounds of the uh the revving plane engines. Like everything else is completely silent, so you just you are just relying on everyone's facial expressions. Uh yeah, when he's panicked and then they start leaving and uh yeah, he runs up to those cops real quick when they're trying to trying to catch a taxi. Uh and yeah, I I just love his his final line when she's like, "Oh, quick, we've got to get out of here." And he just goes, "What's the point?" like he's like i know yeah, I'm what's done. the like, difference like i'm finished like they're they've got me they know i'm the one that they know i did something like I, i'm just gonna stand here and wait for him yeah but the I, the greatest moment is the visual of you know they're sweating it like oh shit and then you see the cart coming around with the with the baggage all on it and there's this like very loose on the top bouncing around <laughs> And the plane starts up, and it's, like, real intense on the propeller. And that dog runs out, and then, you know, he swerves, and the bag just, like... I like how the bag pops open before it even hits the ground, because it's, like, it's such a cheap bag. Yeah. And then just that scene that's, like... It feels like it's a minute long of just... It's until all, money, all the money, money totally blows away from the propeller. I love it. And their reactions just, like, fuck... Yeah, they're like, uh, let's just leave. Let's not even get on the airplane. <laughs> let's just, uh, let's just go. That final shot's too is great too. It, that's where it feels very Kubrickian to me, right there, when it's from hit their point of view, and you see that guy come up, and he's talking to the obviously like the undercover police at the airport, yeah. and he's pointing, and then they they're like that point of view they're like so and, synchronous when they like both they both emerge through the doors at the exact same speed and time like it is is uh, a, it's a very good like composed shot of just just the whole thing's like uh very yeah. symmetrical that one guy's funny too he's like the least threatening the guy with the glasses like he's like the least threatening police officer of all time but that it is interesting too though i i see it's little things like this that i like i like that it ends from their perspective of being arrested. So it's like the audience kind of got arrested too. Yeah. I mean, the assumptions they get arrested because Johnny Clay or whatever is not fighting. Yeah. He's not putting up any, or at sort least of he fight. probably gets arrested. I'm sure he's like, tells him like, Oh, let her go. Like she didn't have anything to do with it. So it probably is just him going to jail, but here's what you need. You need to remake the movie. But then there has to be a sequel, and the sequel is a prison escape movie. <laughs> so you get the, the heist, heist movie, movie, then you get the prison escape movie. Get a two for one deal there. Yeah, do you know who that guy is? That's Johnny Clay. And you're like, oh, I fucked up the last time. <laughs> I, I think also too, where the idea of like what, how you would fix it and change it. How would you update the ending? How how would you update that ending? Cause like now they're scanning yeah, for money. It feels and... like it's yeah that that is one of those things. Again, like I said, uh, that's where I always felt like the Coens like to do movies that aren't necessarily exactly in the present because technology would would ruin or or make some of the things not work or not be as suspenseful. Like that like ending no is also very Cohen esque. So it this is, is exactly. a good transition over it, into it. Very much is. That's how a lot of their. I mean, I, yeah, I think we brought it up when we did our. Uh, 
our episode on No Country for Old Men that about how like the money ends up being so inconsequential by the end of the film that the characters don't even you don't even know who even has the money by the end of the film because it didn't even really matter like that wasn't the that wasn't the whole point the point was the the other stuff going on but uh a lot of them don't even have like a strong reason for doing the heist <laughs> you know what yeah. i mean like it's just they're all, almost kind of a generic I mean, they put a little bit more personality to them. They're not just no-named gangsters. Most, yeah, most. I feel like that's yeah. Most heist films, it's just like the characters, just like I'm a jewel thief. That's what I do. Like that's just like it's that's that's their entire reasoning for doing things. Is is what do you want me to do? I rob banks. I think that I kind of like a stronger motive. This doesn't bother me, but I, I like when a character kind of gets pulled into it. Um, and maybe not necessarily always against their will. It could be their choice, but sort of like everyone's very familiar with Breaking Bad, that kind of idea of of um, you desperately need this money, or you know, because you're living in in America, where we don't have a good healthcare system, so you need to do this. And then there's also the, like it also has other elements of pride and how that can get in the way so you got this great character development that happens over the course of that whole series cinematically it's a little harder to do if you're doing it with a a two-hour movie but there's plenty of movies where the plot drives the character and then the character's past you know pushes that a little bit farther this you don't really get much about them like obviously they've I feel like they've done it before, even though a lot of them, a lot of these characters don't seem like they're that shady of people. Like, I get the idea that the cop and George that runs the, like, the cash register and the bartender, like, I don't really see them being small-time crooks that got these jobs. They feel like they'd be, like, everyday men that were just, like, interested in trying to do a heist. Yeah. Yeah, the cop's definitely, definitely probably like a dirty cop. He's obviously got his gambling debts, and he probably is like maybe taking bribes from people before or something. Which I do, I do love the. Uh, I'll pay you back next week uh, with like, interest. Yeah, sure. The guy that runs the, uh, the like little, little shacks, the little hotel that he stays in, whatever that place is supposed to technically be. In. I think it's just like a motel yeah, or yeah, whatever. Whatever they consider it, and uh, when Johnny tells him. Now, a buddy of mine's going to be coming back in later. He's a cop, and that guy's like, oh, and he's like, he's a, uh, he, he's a good cop. He, he, or by, by his definition of a good cop is, eh, he's not going to bust us for anything. He's in on the scheme. You sound kind of quiet. Am I louder now? Yes, you sound really good like that. I, I leaned away for a second. <laughs> you were, like, whispering. You're like, yeah. He's a good cop. Let me, let me tell you. Let me tell you how good of a cop he is. It becomes ASMR. On yeah, our podcast. That's, that's what we're going for now. <laughs> Chuck's that element. I'm just loud, and you're like, I'm trying to enjoy Chuck here right yeah. now, but Justin's trying, trying talking. Trying to give you that ASMR. <laughs> yeah, I mean, in general, Kubrick is, he's a perfectionist. He's not necessarily a good person. <laughs> uh, I Like, I have a book on his kind of like his life biopic of sorts that I never read. But I did read that 2001 Space Odyssey 
film about or book about the production of it. And the only thing that really like makes him terrible is that he do, he really does not care about the well-being of others. He his mindset is that film is forever, so who cares if you get injured or hurt yeah. or possibly killed on this set? I because there like... was like there's a lot of stuff with that movie. I didn't we didn't even even talk about it in our episode when we did it cuz I didn't even know about it then. But you know, there was a guy that almost fell off a rafter. There was a guy that almost got hit with a light that they half-fasted. Yeah. The guys in the gorillas or the monkey suits were like dying in the fucking sun <laughs> to make these shots for this guy. Yeah, I feel like the the director that most like he's obviously very influential and there's a lot of a lot of directors that take certain elements from his style and and how he did things, but I feel like the one that uh would probably get the most often compared to in terms of like that perfectionism is obviously David Fincher who has kind of the same reaction that some actors have been like like been like well, okay dude like yeah 50 takes is not not normal like i can't do 50 takes of one scene and they kind of like lose their mind or like i know robert downey jr got mad on this filming of zodiac because like they wouldn't let them like have breaks they just wanted them to keep filming and doing take after take over and over so he's just like he was doing the amazon worker like just peeing in jars and like leaving them all around the set like oh i guess i'm not allowed to take breaks i'm not allowed to I'll have to go back to my trailer. I got to be on set, like filming 70 takes of one scene. Uh, and that, so I know that's, he, he's the one I feel like that gets the most comparison, but I mean, it, again, it, it is one of those things of the quality shows in the filming that he obviously gets what he wants and it looks great. It, it sounds great. Everything is perfected into his films he just maybe doesn't have a good relationship with any of his actors after they act. Well, it's him. like we're only going to lot you so much money and so much time, so it's time at the expense of his cast and crew. Yeah. But yeah, it's weird because I'm in the mindset that you know the first couple takes are the best that you would get. Uh, that's why a lot of times there's directors that they don't rehearse anything. Because they think they're going to get in it, like, they're afraid they're going to get this great reaction in rehearsal that they won't actually get when the camera's running. Yeah. And, yeah, Kubrick, Kubrick is, I guess Fincher is the closest to Kubrick in the style that he, the way that he chooses to direct things. Uh, very similar in the way that he's pretty much just a director. And... Yeah, just like the, the the attention to detail for everything. Yeah. Are there mistakes? Sure, but I feel like a lot of it's planned, a lot of it's methodical. I mean, there's things that I, I wasn't 100% sure of until we really covered this Coen Brothers theme, and I was from last month, and I was looking into that, where the Coens like, stick very strictly to their script. And they almost seem like guys that would be okay with improv, but it's very important, I guess, that... They don't change the dialogue because I guess however they're going to be editing this, you know, they can't, they can't afford to have mistakes. I've done it. I've, I've done it where like, you know, I'm like, yeah, if that's easier to say, say it that way. And then when I watched the final result, like I did that one short film with Jeremy and the back and forth, like didn't match up with what the two characters say because the one had to repeat the other one. So I can't remember exactly what it was, but 
it was my dad and our friend Jeremy. And my dad said something, and Jeremy repeats the line, but he doesn't say the right word. Yeah. And it's like, while we were filming that, it seemed fine. But when it went to editing, we're like, oh, shit, we should not let him change that line. <laughs> um, just because we didn't realize that, like, I don't know, there's just so much going on. We don't have, it's small, we don't have a script uh, supervisor or anything like that, making sure that everything is going the way it's supposed to. And then they still mess up. They still have people like that, and they mess up continuity. Um. But I, and but I do see a little bit of perfectionism even in the killing, and I think it comes down to where Kubrick uses a lot of the same shots when they, when they revisit a scene, the scene where Johnny Clay goes through the door is the same one twice, the one where Maurice asks for a beer is the same shot twice. Yeah. Yeah. So it's not like it's it's definitely he definitive he definitively wants things to go down in, in a certain way in time. There's no perspective. There's no character perspective in any any of his work, I don't think. Or either that or I would say it's like a weird shared perspective. We'll get into it when we talk about The Shining because obviously people are seeing different things, but they're all seeing stuff. So, But I feel like in this movie, it's definitely Kubrick saying this is how things go down and there's no question about it. Yeah. Yeah, I do God. think I do think it is it's a good movie. It has a lot a lot of moving parts and I, and yeah, I guess that's that's like another of his biggest criticisms from from people that watch his films. It's it was obviously well we can talk about it later when we get to it, but um that was Stephen King's biggest uh gripe about The Shining was that his books are especially The Shining are the characters are all like very passionate and it's obviously very how he did literally describes it's all very fiery whereas all of kubrick's work is very icy and there's obviously there is a detachment from the characters that's that he does not ever really go into like you were saying their point of view he is always like just an observer just filming the things as they happen he never really gets in that point of view or very rarely gets into a specific point of view shot every once in a while you'll get those but he doesn't like to use them too frequently. and I'm really excited to discuss The Shining with you again. Uh, yeah, I enjoyed it the because... last time, but it's uh, yeah, that's that's a movie I'll talk about any day. Yeah, I, it's... I mean, obviously, we're discussing Kubrick, too, even though this is technically the killing episode. We'll do our best to save our discussions for the ones that fit into the movie that we're discussing. But there's so much with The Shining, I feel like I could do like a 10-part... <laughs> shining and just and have new stuff to talk about so trust me it's not gonna be a 10-hour episode though it's gonna be what we can get into one conversation and that <laughs> is the episode yeah no point in in stretching it much further than that but i'm a huge lover of stephen king and i'm a huge lover of kubrick and it's sort of like they're yeah coming from two different worlds the the writer and the filmmaker I think King makes all the right decisions in how he writes a story, but when you adapt something visually, it's a it's a completely different type of storytelling. And I, I think Kubrick does a really good job, like in everything. Yeah, and even on this film, and and he does it 
he does it in his other films that he works with he he loves working with writers like actual like novelists and writers this one he works with uh, uh jim thompson who does whose credit is the dialogue which i think is another very specific i feel like that's never really kubrick is very much a visual person i feel like he he does prefer to tell things just by you seeing them not being told them uh so i feel like that's definitely a very very specific thing to look at the credits of this film as he came up with all of the uh you know the flow of everything the way the story progresses and then like uh the other guy can write like dialogue like he's probably better at you know what what gangsters would say or what the what these guys would come up with that and he, he worked with on almost all of his films the person that was like co-writing it with him like on 2001 with arthur c clark um and a lot of these other films that he would always work with like a novelist or a writer or i'm even thinking we're not discussing it in this this round we'll get to it maybe if we discuss war but full metal jacket yeah. arlie ermy is the one that pretty much wrote His i mean dialogue. it wasn't real written it was i think it was mostly improvised but yeah. ha- that he's half the movie and all that dialogue is stuff that he grew up and knew very well yeah and that's another thing that I love because that writing, the right, well, the dialogue with that character is not exposition. It adds yeah. to the horror of basic training, but it's not, it's not constantly telling us stuff. You know, it's not feeding us a bunch of information. Yeah, it's it's like mood, which but, is why I, I'm a huge proponent of if you're gonna have a character say something they should kind of be saying something about themselves yeah which is why i I love quentin tarantino's work because they could be very talky but they're not usually talking about the plot they could have a casual conversation about tipping and now you're learning who these people are as people from the conversation that's happening yeah that's i think that's like a good a good thing from kubrick is he like, I guess the, the way he approaches that kind of collaboration from an outside writer or a source like that is he's not afraid to say that, like, hey, I'm not good at dialogue. Like, I prefer visual. Like, you know, he started as a photographer. So it, it's very obvious that that is his his thing that he loves is just telling things purely visually. You know, 2001 A Space Odyssey, like 90% of that movie doesn't even have dialogue. It is just those those great shots and the way he composes everything and puts it together. If you can figure out the story visually, if you can tell the story visually, I would say that you're a good director. And that's that. I think that's definitely the most important thing. If you don't have to keep calling out things to the audience, if you can just, if you can show them and make it make sense, then yeah, you're great. Yeah. But I, and like I said, I think, I think that's what he's best at. And he knows when, you know he's gonna need dialogue or need something like that that he knows when you he know. knows he knows when he <laughs> he knows when he needs that type of stuff which that almost makes me think of another another director to to compare him to which we've already done in this film is uh like nolan and i feel like there's sometimes where maybe christopher nolan's like i can figure out how to write this story and then the story is like i don't know man was that the best you could come up with like you couldn't get your brother or like somebody else to co-write with you that maybe you work on the like he's another one that I feel like he knows he knows everything like purely visual and he loves that stuff. And I don't think he's the best at when it comes down to actually writing a story, writing dialogue. Like I feel like that's why 
he collaborated with his brother so much at doing that part of it or even like the batman movies he had like david goyer to write the actual like scenes the dialogue scenes and then he can focus on all the visuals that he loves to do and something like tenet very much came off as like a like the visuals the movie looked amazing but then when it got into the story and he was the like the sole writer of it you're like i don't know man that that wasn't that good yeah i can kind of tell yeah you could tell that you were the only writer in the room on that one well i think it's interesting because you'll get these people that'll stick with the same cinematographer for a while and it'll give them a distinct look or they'll stick with the same editor for a while but then you get them where they get in the headspace of like i'm gonna write my own film and it ends up terrible because the way that they structure everything and they plan everything their focus is more on the moment and how the scene's going to play out like that's their job like are they are they telling the story in a way that makes sense to people but now when they're trying to write stuff like they're they're not they're taking it for granted i think a little bit like writing is one of the hardest things i think that you could possibly do because especially anything that i've worked on where everything is you know constantly being rewritten like we need to rewrite this we need to do that like things are constantly changing and you know what when you watch the fucking movie and there's plot hole it's like well maybe if they didn't have to rewrite the script while they were like in the middle of shooting it then everything would have made sense but then you have to have a lot of trust in that writer you know you'd almost be better off i think for example something like True Detective stands out in my mind where obviously the first season's probably the best because they had time to work out the whole season before they they shot them. Mind you, uh but then whenever you got to this when they greenlit season 2 and you had a year to put all this stuff together, it's like they weren't as prepared as they were with the first season. But I just don't understand why you couldn't try to do something similar where if you like wanted to do a book and you read the book and you're like, this is great. Why wouldn't you choose somebody that you you feel like you gel with as a writer to adapt that book for you? I mean, I you know, they 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 have their their favorite costumers, their favorite production designers. Why not why not stick to the writer more often? Yeah. Or just pick really good writers. <laughs> and be like, this person won an Academy Award. <laughs> Maybe they can they can adapt uh this new Stephen King book for me. <laughs> that's what I do. Who's the best writer and director? Let's. That's who I'm going to get for this movie. And I mean, sometimes that's still, you know, people don't don't gel with each other, and, and yeah. you can set yourself up for failure. But yeah, it can happen. Yeah, but you got to give people chances too. Like we said at the beginning of this episode, I watched Fear and Desire, and it was awful, and. I, I felt like it could have ended it could have ended his career I'm also getting the vibe that and I don't have the information in front of me that like the first ones were kind of like self-funded like he borrowed money for fear and desire I think from an uncle I don't know how he started to get into killer's kiss a few years later but they saw some potential in that and he was given the killing so he was able to build a he was able to build that career that he wanted to build 
and it's just sad because I see things where I do feel like there are director modern directors that are really really sharp and they make one fucking mistake and then you never see from like it's almost the opposite I mean what's a very terrible debut movie you can think of Aliens 3 David Fincher come on we already set that up earlier (laughs) well I mean what if I'm trying to think of somebody who didn't get to make anything else because their movie was so terrible Hmm. like a Yule Bull but like became better (laughs) (laughs) you know like that first movie is so terrible like the worst movie you've seen and you're like that guy needs to stop making movies but he was actually secretly kubrick you know if you just gave him money and you trusted him he would be the next like visionary director that you never knew i mean some do impress in different ways ben affleck's a director that i think's really sharp I didn't love, was it Live by Night or whatever his last one was, but um, his other ones were great. His other three. So, Kubrick. Kubrick. So what man. you're saying is Ben Affleck's on the same level as Stanley Kubrick. That's how, that's, that's how we can end this. He might be better. <laughs> he had started with better movies. Yeah, that's Ben Ben Affleck is Stanley Kubrick. That's the end. Uh, I don't know if there's a a modern uh, Kubrick. You know, and David Fincher's films don't feel like Kubrick's. His directing style does. But I don't really know who would be like a modern. I know PTA. He actually worked with him once. I it might have just been Eyes Wide Shut. But he was on set with Kubrick, and he also kind of picked up a lot of like he was impressionable at the at the age that he was on set and carried it over. But um, personally, a PTA, I I feel like he's a like I, I kind of like his not just his movies, which are, have a great style to it. I like that he's a guy that like how he he quit film school when they were saying like we're gonna make art movies, not things like Terminator. And he's like, but Terminator's a good movie. <laughs> he said he saw the new Venom and was like, I liked it. I liked it for yeah. what it was. It's like you don't. Exp- it's like, and I think that's the type of person everybody needs to be. You just kind of gotta trust your opinion. If you don't like it, you don't like it. You don't have. You don't have to like it because everyone else does. But I think if you really enjoy a movie that everybody else hates, there's nothing wrong with admitting that you like it. We watch a lot. I watch a lot of trash. There's movies I hate, and I'm like, I'll watch the next one when it comes out. (laughs) But yeah, I'm excited to get more into Kubrick. Three more episodes of Kubrick. Then we're moving into another director. Uh, I really do appreciate the way that we're tackling this because at least with even Cohen's, Cohen's and Kubrick, we're hitting some pretty big films. Uh, and I think a lot of times on our podcast, we can go more obscure when we pick a, yeah. a theme. Yeah, Although we, I think... I, I would say the four, the first four directors that we picked and we picked all their films out, I have seen all their films already. So everything's revisiting. And usually when we have just a theme of some sort, there's been a pick that, like, I haven't seen. Yeah, the only 
Out of everything we're doing, the only one I haven't seen is the was Barton Fink from last uh, from the poems. I never watched that one before. But we'll get into it. We'll see you. We'll, see, we'll be back next week with Doctor Strange Love, which I'm really, really excited to talk about. I think that's a wonderful movie. It, probably one of the funniest movies. And it's really strange because Kubrick does have a sense of humor in everything, but that movie is just... Mm. I don't know how he pulls it off so well. Like his, The way he handles the whole satire is just... It, it blows my mind because he, he doesn't seem like he would be a funny person. No. <laughs> my perspective is he's all serious and couldn't be funny at all. And he's just like, I'm going to do comedy next. And then made one of the greatest ones. So that's next week. Chuck, we're at Cinema de More on Twitter at Cinema de More slash Cinema de More on Facebook. On Twitter, I'm at JJ Morgan 19. Chuck, you're there too. Chuck Finn 66. And we'll be back. Thanks for listening, everybody. Thanks. We appreciate it. Subscribe to our podcast. Tell all your friends about it. They'll be like, why? Why did you make me listen to this? <laughs> or not. We'll love it. All right. Till next week. We are Cinema de More. Follow us on Facebook and Twitter to stay up to date with news and information on upcoming episodes. Find us on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Podbean, Spotify, Amazon Music, Audible, Pandora, Alexa, or iHeartRadio. It would be greatly appreciated if you subscribe to our podcast on your platform of choice. We also appreciate feedback, so rate us, review us, and let us know what you think. And above all else, thank you for listening.